you being here. There's a lot of people who are a part of this midweek journey that, that this is very, very important to them. And, and this book of Ephesians has been one that um, I think is timely in a lot of ways for, for, for our audience, maybe for you, I know for me. Um, really, I, I haven't done a Paul book in this setting in the Tuesdays since we've been together. I can't believe that happened. Um, and it's been refreshing for me to jump back into to that and to watch how that works. So um, think about whatever you've got. Let's say it at the end. We'll open the floor and, and just hear what's going on in your life and your week. Um, but, but let's go ahead and start so that we can move into and through the lesson. I don't like to take too much of your time. I like to actually, I like the end more than I like anything I say on any given Tuesday night. I enjoy the end. I enjoy hearing what's happening. I enjoy what the word does to you and what your week looks like and what the Lord's saying to you. And I'll just try to give as much space for that as possible because, well, tonight's lesson will actually speak to that. Um, I want to, I want to use what will be our 19th lesson in the studies of Ephesians. I want to let the audience know that if you're looking on the dates for these lessons, you'll notice a gap. We were here last week, but we did not do Ephesians. We did a sermon called the spirit of grace and that aired this past weekend. So if you um, haven't watched the spirit of grace, I highly recommend it. It's a message that was really, really on fire in my spirit. I had to release that word. Um, it immediately got a lot of feedback from people who obviously the spirit of grace is going to work in them. And so that was, that was exciting. That's why there's a little bit of a gap between our last study in Ephesians and tonight. So we're back at it and we're in the fourth chapter and we're going to do a lesson tonight that I'm titling The Gifted Church. Um, I originally was going to call this He Gave Gifts, but and just pulling a boring title right out of the text because the text says He Gave Gifts. Um, but then the more I thought about it, um, I wanted to look at the fact that the church of Jesus Christ is full of gifts. We are not simply a place where gifted people build churches. Although we live in a society where gifted people build churches. Um, and what I mean by that is if you can get a gifted person and they surround themselves with a few other gifted people and everybody does their thing, you can get something growing and sometimes like a snowball rolling down a hill, you can get bigger and bigger and bigger and you can do things. And I'm not saying that's, uh, that they don't do great things, but I'm uh, also, I am saying that it's not supposed to be a one-sided event when it comes to the gifts of the church. It's not just for those who are starting churches, running ministries, being on the platform, teaching in a class, running. The church of Jesus Christ is just chock full of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Every single member of the body of Christ is absolutely gifted. They may not know it. They may be totally ignorant to it. They may not even believe it. But I think 2,000 years ago, Paul, looking into the very early church, the young church, was saying, you people have more potential than you realize. There's something inside of all of you that is, that is exactly what the local assembly needs. There's something inside of you that needs cultivated. There's something inside of you that needs um, given the chance to breathe and not stifled, not choked out, not ignored, not overlooked. And so if that was the case then... Well, I know it's the case now. We, we have more to choose, more to pull from, more options and more people. And 
um, but no less gifting. And so uh, I, I really want to, th- th- this is a lesson that probably in, in, a, in a former version of myself, I would have just titled it the fivefold ministry because uh, that's kind of what everybody calls Ephesians 4, where he gives unto some apostles and, and uh, prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And there's five of them. And we go, well, there's a fivefold ministry. And what happens is we teach that there are five basic ministries in the church and that maybe God's calling you into one of them. And most people are sitting in the service going, well, I'm not that one, 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 I don't want to be. So obviously I'm just supposed to be the guy that sits out here and puts money in the offering. And that's kind of how we teach it sometimes. Like, look, if you don't have one of these, well, then you're support staff. You're a support group. You, you, you help fund this baby. You help get this dream off the ground, man. Help, help prop this vision up. I'm not going to teach it that way because I don't, I don't believe that there's only a five-fold ministry. I don't think that ministry consists of just five prongs of public service that happens on platforms and in offices. It's part of it. It's definitely part of it. It's just part. Let's talk about the whole gifting for the church. To do so, let's read from Ephesians chapter 4. You're going to notice some stuff that we talked about in our lesson called He Descended. Because you recall we talked about the harrowing of hell. How Jesus between the cross and the resurrection goes and does something. Well, I, I knew we were on our way to this gifting stuff, but I wanted to take Paul's parenthetical serious. So we're gonna, I'm going to show you the scripture in front of the parenthetical, we read it already, which really sets us up for the whole gifting passage. You'll even see the word gift at the end of seven. To each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ gives to all grace. Christ gives to all of his gift. So if Christ is giving of his gift, grace, then it stands to the test, it it stands to reason as far as I'm concerned that if Christ gives of his gift to everyone, everyone has a taste of the gift. So you can say, well, everyone has grace. Absolutely. Everyone has the grace of God at work in some way or the other. But more than that, Paul sort of takes us down a road here by saying, therefore he says, and he quotes Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. Remember, I told you that the original text says he took gifts from men. Paul changes that under a new covenant lens and goes, now what he actually did is he's not taking from you. He's giving to you. If you'll recall, I think we even made the statement um, when you're in environments where the gifted only want to take instead of give, uh, it's, it's going to eventually take the life right out of you and take the joy right out of you. He's going to take the peace right out of you. Just kind of sucks the oxygen from the room. So Christ isn't a, isn't a taker. He's a giver. Out of that, Paul then says this in verse 9, and you'll notice 9 and 10 are parenthetical. It means that Paul sort of takes an aside. We did. We, we taught a whole lesson on it. He ascended. What does it mean? But he first descended to the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, I want you to go back a screen, if you would, Brian. And what we're going to do is we're going to read and we're going to get rid of the parenthetical. Because parenthetical is Paul trying to describe, sort of in the brackets, something he just said. Just get rid of it. Not because we're skipping it. We already preached it. We already taught it. We've taken care of it. Well, probably not, but we did the best I could. And so go back and listen to it again and and see what you think. But we're going to get rid of it. So let's just start here. He says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. And he himself gave some to be apostles. So 
when you get rid of the parenthetical, the giving flows. He gave gifts to men. What did he give? Well, he gave to some apostles. And so the, the whole fivefold ministry, the whole apostles and prophets and evangelists, it flows right out of the grace that God gives to his whole church, which tells us that you don't earn any of the stuff that are called gifts. So you don't earn apostolic gifting. You don't earn evangelistic gifting. Um, there's no price you can pay to be gifted in ministry. Now, there's a price you can pay to be better at what you do. <laughs> Whatever you do in life, there's a price you can pay to be better at it. You want to be a better musician? Practice. You want to be a better athlete? Go to practice. Get in the weight room. Get in the batting cage. Do, take some shots. Whatever you got to do. Work on your game. If you don't work on it, probably not going to get any better. There's a lot of talent there, but there's a lot of things that got to be worked on. That, that's across the board. You don't even need to be convinced of that. We all know it. But you, you don't earn God gifting you with a, ministry, with, with a ministry gift or with a calling. There's something we walk into because He Himself gave. So look at any gift in the church as a gift of Jesus Christ to you. I've also found that this will help your day-to-day -day life if you look at the things in your life that matter as if they are God's gift to you. And, you know, we, we, we mockingly say that guy thinks he's God's gift to women or he thinks he's God's gift to the earth. We say that because it's backwards. You should never be... You are not God's gift to people. <laughs> you should look at people and the things in your life as God's gift to you. And so if you look at your spouse that way, then you honor your marriage in a different way than if you think you're the gift to the, to the spouse, but rather they're the, the gift to you. So in every area of your life, it's he himself gave some to be apostles, to be prophets. Um, so I, I've already kind of touched on some of this, but I want to go ahead and as we start to lean into some of these five, and I actually am going to argue that there's actually only four here. I know it looks like there's five, but you'll see what I mean in just a moment. Go ahead. Uh, no Christian is without some gift of ministry, but I want you to change the way you think of ministry, maybe. Don't think of ministry as preaching. <laughs> I, I would even say don't even think of ministry as anything to do with like church leadership. That's just a thin slice of what the planet needs. So, honestly, I don't even know if the planet needs another good preacher. <laughs> I, think the, I think planet Earth probably has a lot more needs than another gifted speaker, another gifted musician. I mean, I really think there's probably bigger fish to fry than somebody else comes out with a great oratory gift. The reality is, is ministry is almost never done on a platform and almost never done on a public sphere relative to its most common space. What I mean is, it's, of course it's done on platforms. Ministry is done on platforms all the time. But relative to its most comfortable, breathable atmosphere, it's never done on platforms because ministry is actually done day to day in people's lives, in department stores, at school, on the field of competition, wherever two human beings encounter one another, ministry can happen. And it can happen in a very real way. Not some superficial, I hand you a card and tell you, hey, you want to come to my church sometime? That's fine and dandy. I don't know if that's ministry, but it, in a way in which it edifies people, it builds people up, it comforts people. 
in a way in which it encourages people, in a way in which it shows them Christ, in a way in which it exposes them to the greatness of the love of God and the, and the gifts of the Spirit and God's grace. Those kind of ministries. Relative to platform ministry, platform ministry church leadership ministry, that's not even ministry relative to how much ministry is happening 24-7. The other stuff's expressive ministry. It's public ministry. It's, dare I say, professional ministry. But if we only relegate it to that, what happens is we create an environment where people think that the best thing they can do for God is to get on a platform. And I don't believe that that's the, the highest calling in the world is to be on a platform. What scares me about a lot of pe- young people that want to get in ministry is they almost always have stars in their eyes. They want to be up on platforms where there's spotlights and they want to be leading churches, but they don't want to be, we don't want to be washing feet. We don't want to be serving we want to be leading from, thus saith the Lord, my Bible's up in the air. Come follow me. I'm going to take us to the promised land. And a lot of times, um, well, I'm not going to give some sort of spiritual commentary on that style of ministry, but I will say that if you, if you want to be judged faithful over the many, start with the few. That's what Jesus would tell us. And so let ministry, the calling never changes, but the placement changes often. And so as you're faithful in what God's given you to do, then you allow whatever God brings your way to be part of what you do. But if you go chasing ministry because you have a definition of what it should look like if you're successful, it'll just become, it'll be like any other job rather than being ministry that's birthed from the heart. And I know we got ministers in this room who are in professional ministry, meaning that your livelihood is built in some way or the other around ministry. So you know what I'm talking about is because you can chase it as a thing and lose a sense of call, or you can accept your call and allow all of the other things to help round that out or give you a platform for that, whatever that might look like. Um, So, Let's just change, for, for purposes of tonight, just change our definition of ministry if we could, okay? Because we're all guilty. I'm, I am too. Someone goes, I'm a minister. I think, well, they're on a platform. They, they lead a church. And we do that. That's okay that we do that. Um, it, 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 the IRS definitely puts it that way. Every year I fill out my taxes, there's a very specific thing that I'm supposed to put in there for occupation. And they don't think in any way that that means witnessing 24-7. You know, that, that's a very definable category. So, so I do understand where, how we see it. I'm just trying to challenge you for a little bit to think a little bit differently. Let's look at those fourfold slash fivefold ministry. He, gave, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. There's no comma there pastors and teachers, and we'll explain a little bit more in a moment, but in the Greek is probably a little more related to one calling than it is to two. And so we'll get into that. Okay. Here comes Bible study time. All right. And in Bible study time, there's a couple of ways to do this. One is that we go to all the verses. Not going to do that. The other way is that I give you the verses. You can do with them what you will. Take a picture of the screen, write them down, but I encourage you to at least have some way, even if it's to go back and watch this later, to listen to this later and look these up. Okay, because they will give you a frame of reference around each one of these because we don't have the kind of time it takes in a short Bible study in the middle of the week to really exhaustively look at the New Testament version of the four or the fivefold ministry. So some of this you just have to do on your own. I do not say just trust me. All right. I don't ever teach that way. So go, well, just trust me. You know, I told you what it is. Here's a couple of verses. Look them up or not. No, don't do that. Go look them up yourself. Kind of work on them a little bit and see where you land. But I'm gonna, we're going to work through these. Because we're in Ephesians 4. 
We're going to mention others, but we're going to work through these. So let's start with apostles. And we do this because it's the first one that Paul put in the list. I want to show you a restricted sense. I want to show you a broad sense. So in a very restricted sense, apostles were those who had been with Jesus. This past tense, because we're talking about in first century time of the New Testament. When we say apostle Paul, what do we mean? Apostle Peter, what do we mean? This is what we mean. In a restricted sense, they had been with Jesus or they had witnessed his resurrection or they had a special revelation of the resurrected Jesus. That one's Paul, by the way. Uh, not just Paul, but definitely Paul falls into that one because of the road to Damascus. You can see stuff like that in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. You get a little bit of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. These are certainly not exhaustive. There's a whole lot more. You could even just get out a commentary and look up the word apostle and then go look at every verse you can find in the New Testament and you, you might, you're going to come up with a whole lot more than just these two. But there's also a broad sense by which the apostle is defined. And this is why we still talk about apostle to this day. And the broad sense is that apostles were people sent out as delegates of particular churches. It has come to mean in nearly 20 centuries of church history, those who plant churches or ministries, those who expand churches or ministries. And we derived that from this broad sense. For instance, Romans 16 and 7. By the way, Romans 16 and 7 is the only female apostle mentioned in the New Testament, but she's there, Junia. And the fact that Paul calls a female an apostle is yet another instance of Paul believing that there is no real gender category in what the dispensation of grace doesn't know. If, dispensation of grace doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. The Holy Spirit moves equally. And so, and, and so we have a female apostle. 2 Corinthians 8.23, Philippians 2.25. Again, we could spend all night, go through these, look them up in the restrictions. I'm not going to do that. You look them up on your own. So think of it this way. In, the, in biblical terms, in the first century, an apostle would have, if you go, got in a time machine, went back in the first century and called yourself an apostle, most likely if you called yourself an apostle, they would have assumed that you either walked with Jesus, saw Jesus resurrected, or you've had a vision of Jesus in the tangible in your lifetime. Uh, if others called you an apostle, it's quite possible that you were those sent out as delegates to particular churches. All right? Do apostles still exist? Well, this restricted sense, probably not. I mean, we don't have any of us that walked with Jesus. We don't have any of us that witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Um, have people been given special revelation of the resurrected Jesus since, Jesus since Paul? Yeah, it's happened. I'm not going to argue with somebody that says, I saw Jesus. Um, okay. Uh, but in a narrow sense, or I'm sorry, in a more broad sense, are there apostles? Sure. There are people who, whose calling is to establish ministry and establish churches. And so that's one of the prongs of, of ministry. You're going to hear some teaching that will tell you that the fivefold ministry is like the fingers on your hand. And so, you know, you can go through and one's for grip and one's for pointing and, one, you know, one's covenant and all. If that helps you to learn that, if that helps you to teach that, great. Um, that's not my style. It's not, not, not me. Um, so you kind of do what you, whatever you've been trained to do on that. That's fine. I'm saying this really for people outside of this room, really kind of come looking for those sorts of lessons. I don't know. I've been asked about this multiple times lately. It was almost like the spirit preparing me. I've been asked about it by multiple ministers lately. Like, what do you think of the fivefold ministry? What's your take on the fivefold ministry? Which I thought was odd 
because here I am on my way to Ephesians 4. And I, I probably hadn't fielded that question one time in five years, and I filled it twice in two weeks. So I go, okay, Lord, I really don't pay attention in this moment. So, uh, so I say that for those watching that. Let's move on. Um, prophets, New Testament prophets conveyed special revelation to the early church. Their functions, notice I said New Testament because the role of the Old Testament prophet and the Old New Testament prophet are entirely different. All you got to do is read the Old Testament. You figure that out pretty fast. Uh, Old Testament prophets were covenant enforcers and they were speaking to God's people about where they were missing it because the people couldn't hear from God. The prophet was the mouthpiece of God to people. New Testament prophets are different. Their functions included prediction, exhortation, encouragement, warning, and explanation. Some of the examples, Acts 11, 27 to 32. By the way, Acts 11, 27 to 32 is a good one for warning. Acts 11 is where a prophet stands up and warns the church that there's about to be a famine that's going to swamp the entire Roman Empire in the days of Caesar Claudius. And it does. And here's the interesting thing. The first time a New Testament prophet prophesies of doom, he does not connect it to sin. He just says there's going to be a famine, a bunch of people are in trouble, and then they take up an offering to send to their brethren that are going to be affected by the famine. They don't accuse people of sin. They don't call it the end of the world. They just, get this, they just prepare to face the famine. Can you imagine if we had a prophet today in the church that went, this bad thing's about to go down. Here's what we need to do to help the people that are going to be affected by it. We wouldn't, even know what, we wouldn't even know how to handle that kind of prophecy because we only know that if something bad goes down, we only prophesy about it after the fact, which is real prophecy, right? After the fact, and we identify who sinned. This is why those wildfires are happening out there in California. This is why that hurricane's hitting New Orleans. I've heard this stuff forever, and it's always after the fact, and it's always somebody sinned. You don't find New Testament prophets doing that. So by the way, don't amen that garbage. Just don't give that the time of day. That's not a New Testament prophet. There are warnings, absolutely. Uh, Acts 15, 32, Acts 21, 9 to 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Once again, I highly encourage you to work through some of these. They'll show you. Uh, one of these even shows you that there's four young women in the book of Acts that were, and the Bible says, four virgin women were prophets. It's almost an obscure thrown in. It's, uh, it's maybe 21 Anyway, it's 15 or 21, one of those two chapters. It's like an, an odd moment where, once again, the Holy Spirit just kind of sneaks it in and goes, see, even women get to be prophets. Which, by the way, shouldn't be stunning if you're a Pentecostal. Because this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That always got said. It didn't always get implemented, but it was supposed to be part of the Pentecostal experience was that both women and men would prophesy because there's no limit on men or women being in the business of predicting, exhorting, encouraging, warning, or explaining. That leads us to the evangelist. Evangelists seem to be people especially gifted to proclaim the gospel. Acts 21.8, 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul even tells Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.5, do the work of an evangelist. And he's talking to a pastor. He, Paul is definitely a pastor doing the work of an evangelist, which leads us to this idea. This gift actually seems closer to what we would call preaching. This is interesting because when most people think about ministry, they think about preaching. He went into the ministry. What's he doing? He's preaching. 
Well, in the fivefold ministry, that would have been closer to evangelists, someone who had the gift of speaking. Here's the interesting fact about the evangelist. Paul drops it from a list of the ministry gifts in his letter to the Corinthians. We're going to read that in a minute. He puts the other ones in. He gets rid of evangelists. Now, did he write Ephesians before he wrote Corinthians? Great question. Not really sure. Probably wrote Corinthians first. Maybe he adds the evangelist later. Here's a really interesting fact. Of all of our first church fathers, our early church fathers, we don't get anyone write the word evangelist down to around the 4th century. And we don't get anyone refer to themselves as an evangelist until the 5th century. That's a half of a millennium where the evangelist role was forgotten about, quote-unquote forgotten about. And I think it might have more to do with the fact that the evangelist was considered to be anyone who was speaking publicly and proclaiming the gospel by preaching. The last 250 years in the Western world, preaching has become the way by which we think ministry is defined, but that's a relatively new thing. For most of church history, teaching was considered the way by which the gospel was defined. Preaching then became an art, sort of a, a thing that people do extemporaneously. So most of the time now, we call evangelists guys that preach but don't have a church. So a lot of times people call me an evangelist. They go, well, he doesn't pastor, so he must be an evangelist. Yet our, our mentality is that evangelists go church to church trying to win sinners. They, or they go preach on the street and try to win sinners. Those are modern definitions. Okay? So an understanding of an evangelist, according to Ephesians 4, would have been someone gifted to speak or proclaim. To the, someone pro, to proclaim the evangelon, the good news. A proclamation of good news. So anytime you proclaim the good news, you do the work on evangelists. Here's the one that I think is why I call it the fourfold ministry instead of the fivefold ministry. It's pastor teacher. And some of your translations don't use the word pastor. They use the word shepherd. And that's because the word for pastor is the Greek word for shepherd. No one says I'm shepherd so-and-so. We say I'm pastor so-and-so, which is more of a modern way of using the word than Ephesians 4 would have used it. A pastor and a teacher. In Greek, these two words go together. They are not pastors and teachers. They're pastor teachers. They're shepherd teachers. In other words, in the syntax of Paul's Greek, they're kind of the same person. They're a single set of individuals who both shepherd and instruct God's flock. They are rarely referred to as pastors in the New Testament. Most of the time they're referred to as elders, presbyters, overseers, shepherds. Okay? So I give you all of this information for Bible study purposes, but I also give you this information to show you that trying to get to the bottom of what the fivefold ministry looks like is going to give you some trouble because you're going to get it through the lens of modern definitions versus Paul's definitions. That's almost impossible to get around. This is also why I think we can make a little too big a deal out of trying to define the fourfold or the fivefold ministry. Because in almost every one of these ministries, we're simply looking at things that are now deemed professional ministry. People who are doing this sort of in public and for a living. And yet there's so much more that is involved. So let's go to the next passage in this run. Verse 12. Here's what those five ministries are for. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Just think about that. 
Those ministries exist to equip people to do ministry. I don't mean, and I don't think Paul means, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are to create more apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that we're all a bunch of pastors, we're all a bunch of prophets, we're all a bunch of apostles. No, but that there are expressions of ministry, namely apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, that are designed to actually equip the body of Christ to edify the body of Christ until everyone in the body of Christ comes to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, the purpose of the fivefold, and I almost put a slash fourfold, but the purpose of the fivefold ministry is to equip saints for ministry. That's it. One of the things that, that I've tried to embrace on these Tuesday meetings, because we started to do this, it was felt like the Lord was leading us here for what? I was going, I don't know. Why here? Could be anywhere. But one of the things I was really sure about was that part of this experience and part of this journey was this weekly meeting. That out of this weekly meeting, it would, we would allow us to forge relationships, to talk about Jesus in a way that was not only beneficial for our online audience, but build relationships among one another. But ultimately, my great joy is to see what it's doing in you, what, it, what it's changing in you. What not just, I don't get much out of getting done and, and boy, that was really good. No, I, that's fine. But, but to get finished and know that the feedback is that you are being equipped, that you're leaving these meetings or you're going back out into the world and you are better equipped to face your day-to-day walk than you were before you got into that intimate setting of hearing about Jesus so that your gifts are, are growing. Many Christians have never discovered, this is what bothers me, and this is why I love these small groups where you can really talk out Scripture. Many Christians have never discovered, they've never used their ministry gifts because we've relegated all things ministry, quote-unquote ministry, to the professionals and to the platform. And therefore, most people in the church don't ever use any of their gifts for two reasons. One, we've told them that they either got to be an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, or a teacher, and they're none of those. Because getting on a platform freak you out. I don't want to get up there and talk in front of people. I don't know how to prepare a sermon. I'm not called to do that. Okay, so because I can't do any of those five, well, then I don't have anything to do. That's one reason people don't use their gifts, because they only think there's five of them. And they're all public gifts. And what happens if people don't want to do stuff in public? Well, ain't nothing for you to do. The second reason they don't use them is there's no opportunity. There's no chance. Come in. Listen to the professionals do the music you don't even sing. Just stand there in the dark. When that's over with, listen to the professional preach. When he's done, you might get to come up here and pray, but for the most part, no questions, no feedback, no conversation. Good luck. See you next week. Oh, did you give? That that kind of becomes... And that's what we get taught as our only ministry. For those of you that don't have a ministry. Those of you that don't have a call. You have a call. Is to support what others are doing. And I mean, we church that stuff up till the only thing we think our ministry is good for is wallet. And this is why a lot of people are so burned with church and ministry because they know if they get close 
and they, and they sense that there's something for them to do, they're just going to get asked to write another check. Wouldn't you like to know that you're, you have a better contribution than just giving? Listen, I love it that people give. It allows me to do what I do. If, if no one gave into our ministry, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have a ministry. I, I get it. It's one of the great tensions of my life is to go, people don't give, you don't get to do this. Because people give, you better do this. So it's a kind of this feedback loop of like, oh, they're still giving, you better do this. And so it keeps me moving, a lot of times moving forward. But I'm also the, like, the worst fundraiser because I tell our audiences a lot, it's like, don't give if the Holy Spirit doesn't lead you to give. Don't give one dollar if the Holy Spirit doesn't lead you to give a dollar. Because I want you to hear from the Spirit. And I want you to know that you're, you have great gifts. And they're not just check writing. You know, I mean, if you have to give, give. But there's, you're more than just to sponsor or prop up. So because we're not letting people develop them, they just atrophy. And a lot of us have just had whatever could have been a gift just sort of shrivel on the vine because it hasn't had any chance to use itself. Now, part of it is our fault. I don't want to give us, let us off the hook. You know, by God, open your mouth, tell somebody about Jesus once in a while. You know, I don't know. Um, use the gift God gave you. Kick the door down, use it. You know, if you got to, if, if, you, if, you, if you know that there's something there. But honestly, I don't think most people know. They haven't been given much of a chance to discover what they could do, what their ministry gift, what, what their calling might be if they were given the chance to show it. So let's look at some of the others, because there are more. I don't want to go into the quite as much depth, but I want to show you that it's not just five. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. There are, I'm going to use different. There are different types of gifts, diversities. There are different types of gifts, but there's the same Holy Spirit. Amen to that. There are different types of ministries, but there's the same Lord. Well, amen to that. That's why we're not all in the exact same ministry. That's fine too. There are different kinds of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. So God doesn't work or move the same way in every situation, in every church, in every ministry. That's okay, but it's the same God. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. When you look at that last line again, who gets the manifestation of the Spirit? The manifestation of the Spirit is given, not earned, given to each one for the profit of all. I don't think this is Paul saying God gifts each ministry so everyone can profit. I think it's Paul saying there's different kinds of gifts, there's different kinds of ministries, there's different kinds of activities, but there's a manifestation of the Spirit in every single one of you. So every single person in the church has a manifestation of the Spirit. And I don't think the Spirit in you is content to just prop His feet up and go, well, let's just support everybody else's ministry all the time. I think there's something He wants to do that he chose you for. Now, I'm not telling you to go start a church, you know, build a website, go write a book, um, try to get into professional ministry, but to begin to discover and uncover the things that God might be saying in each of us. Verse 8, 
One gets the word of wisdom through the Holy Spirit. Another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Another, faith by the same Spirit. Another, gifts of healing. Now you're starting to see that there's more than just pastors and evangelists and apostles and prophets and teachers. There's people, and Paul considered these gifts, and he considered the ministry. There are various kinds of ministries, but there's people who walk in a wisdom or a knowledge or in faith or in gifts of healings or working of miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, different kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. But it's one and the same spirit that works in all of these. And he distributes to each one individually as he wants to. It's his call. So God puts into the body of Christ all of these various and multicolored gifts. And if we don't explore them and we don't practice them and we don't uncover them, well, then that's our loss. He's not mad at us. He's not kicking us. He's not telling us we're stupid. But he still says, I put something in you that's beautiful. It could be there. And so we need the practice and the cultivation of these things. Here's more from that same chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. God has appointed these in the church. Look at this. This looks very much like Ephesians 4. Watch Paul's ministry gifts. First apostles, second prophets. Third should be evangelists. If, if it was Ephesians 4, should be evangelists. He skips it. Third, teachers. What happened to the pastor? He just sort of drops, at this point, he just sort of drops pastor. Because remember, he had pastor-teacher as the same thing in Ephesians 4 anyway. Apostles, prophets, teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healings. Helps. Administrations. Varieties of tongues. Before I read the questions... Honestly, what we're asking pastors to do in the American church is this gift. Gifts of administrations. I mean, literally, the Greek word in... in I'm going to make sure I get this exactly right as I jotted this down. A, a, the steering of a pilot. P-I-L-O-T. That's this guy. <laughs> so we're not going out and hiring captains of boats. But there's a ministry gift that is a pilot, someone that steers the vessel. That's what we're asking pastors to do. They're also supposed to be evangelists. Evangelists with the gifts of prophecy, wisdom, knowledge, working of miracles, faith, good pilots, chock full of vision. <laughs> you can cram all that in one ball, you got yourself a winner. And a lot of times... You're asking too much for one individual most of the time. And then we wonder why people burn out. And that's why I field calls for my fellow pastors. And I go, man, you got to lay something down. Because all they're going to do is kill you. Because right now they're asking you to be this whole ball in one package. And then you got to get up and preach something glorious too. And then when it doesn't fit their theology, they cuss you out at the door. And you've been doing all this stuff all week trying to come up with a 28-minute message so you can survive on Sunday morning. It's you talk about thankless. Why would anybody choose that? Well, no one would, <laughs> For, to be honest. It's just that stuff kind of gets piled up on us. But it, my point is not just to, I'm not on a soapbox. I'm saying, why aren't we releasing that to the people? Why are we just cramming it all up on the platform, asking one or two people to do it, when Paul said, you've all got this stuff. But we're so scared to let go a lot of times for fear that somebody else will get some authority or somebody else will get some power or somebody else will get some pull. God, give us ministries that are 
allowing people's gifts to flourish so that no singular man or woman finds themselves exhausted and burned out in service of the church. It just ought not be. I, I refuse to believe that God, that God's design is for you to carry so much that you get so sick of it you want to quit. It's just not, it's not our Father. It's God, I called you into ministry. It's probably going to kill you, but you'll get to come to heaven sooner. So Paul asks some simple questions. Is everybody an apostle? Is everybody a prophet? Is everybody a teacher? Is everybody a worker of miracles? And we go, well, no, but they should be. No, they shouldn't be. We don't all carry every mantle, and that's Paul's point. Does everybody have the gifts of healings? Does everybody speak in tongues? Does everybody interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I want to show you a more excellent way. And by the way, that's the last verse of 1 Corinthians 12. The next verse is 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Love is patient and kind and long-suffering. That, that's the love chapter. Everybody reads at their wedding. It's the next chapter. Guess what the more excellent way is? Well, you guys are obsessing about gifts. What you ought to start with is just love each other. In an environment of love, we could actually cultivate the gifts. Those things could actually begin to come out in us in an environment of love. And it'll look like this, Ephesians 4. And I want to, because look at this. You know, we're heading to this word right here. <sighs> All of those ministry stuff, it's going to lead you up to love. We should, here's, here was the next verse in our sequence in Ephesians 4. We are no longer, this is why you need, you, the gifts need to be in operation in the church so that we're no longer children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. If we don't let people stir up the gifts that are in them, that they just get easily deceived. But speak the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share. I love that line. Every part does its share. Encourage that. That would cause the growth of the body for what reason? To edify itself in love. So Paul takes that same thing, 1 Corinthians 12. He goes, gifts, 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 gifts. Can everybody do it? Can everybody do it? Can everybody do it? Whatever you do. Love. Because at the end of the day, what Paul's wanting to see is the body that walks in love. Here's my final thought on that. Believers are not given gifts for private benefit. No one can grow to proper maturity in isolation. When we isolate, we're children tossed to and fro. That's spiritual immaturity. It's from a sense of isolation. Members of the body should be encouraged to practice their gifts. I use the word practice on purpose. When you practice, you fail we got to let people practice their gifts. I am thankful that, that I had a dad in ministry let me practice. I mean, we'd have Sunday night church, and my dad would let me preach. And I was young in ministry, and nobody's going to have you. I mean, you're a kid, and who's going to have you come to church and preach? And my dad would have me preach on Sunday evenings or on Wednesday nights and let me practice. And they were just, it was awful. I mean, I look back, there's no way that was any good. They had to be terrible. But, but because he saw that you have to cultivate whatever gift is there and let someone practice, he sat through a lot of awful stuff. <laughs> he gave me a lot of really good advice. And, and, uh, and so I'm one example of, of just in that arena of teaching or evangelism being allowed to practice and, and had to practice on a lot of people and a lot of churches 
and, and probably did more harm than good for a long, long time. I'm still trying to turn that ship around, do more good than harm. You've spent too many years doing otherwise. But I think the whole body of Christ is healthier where more people, more people are involved in your development. This is not a solo game. Okay, you, you, just me and Jesus got our own thing going. It doesn't work that way. You're part of the body of Christ. There are gifts within that body. When they are expressed properly, we all grow. The joints grow, Paul said, into the fullness. Really, you, you could say, Paul says, the body is trying to grow up to where it can hold up the head. Christ is the head of the church. The body's fleshing out. Christ is as, is as Christ as He's going to be. But the body's been fleshing out for 2,000 years. And hopefully we're getting better and better. I, I like to think we're still the, the early church. You know, people kind of think about the early churches 20 centuries ago and then we're the modern church. We're only modern because we're, mo- we're in the modern world. In a few thousand years, maybe we're the early church. People look back and go, well, they had this right and this wrong. But in any case, let, let those gifts cultivate. And I want to encourage whoever's watching, let those gifts, whatever the Holy Spirit's beginning to stir in you, begin to pray that He shows you the outlet, okay? And, and then be obedient to it and walk it out. For pastors, I encourage you to, let, to uh, relinquish the reins a little bit so that it isn't a church defined by you. One of the great mistakes that I made in pastoring, in a dozen years of pastoring, was that I did not let go of the reins enough. Um, and what happened at the end of the day was we built a church around my gift. And we built a church around my personality. And so then when that gift and that personality is gone, the whole church suffers. Well, I didn't see that for a long time. And one of the things that the Lord's done in me in the last seven or eight years is expose that and start to heal it. And to put a, to put a salve on it, a medicine on it, to say, learn from this because you're not done. You're not finished, and so learn from where you were so that when the opportunity is there, you don't... Maybe we don't make those same mistakes twice. So I wish I'd let go of the reins more. Um, I I held on to them out of insecurity, I think. I held on to them out of pride. Um, I felt like I knew what I believed. I didn't want to run the risk of having to deal with a bunch of other doctrines and theologies that I was going to have to clean up. Um, and it's just a lot easier to do things yourself, right? When you know how to do it, it's easier to do it yourself than to watch somebody else do it, and you go, gosh, I could have done better than that. And, but allowing others to cultivate their gifts. And so I'm learning, have learned, am learning, will learn. I hope it's the same for you. I know in a lot of ways this, this is for this room, but in a lot of ways this is for that audience. It's for someone out there who is, maybe it's for, for the pastors who watch that need to learn to let go of some stuff. But ask the Holy Spirit how you are to cultivate the gifts in the room too. One of the tragedies of our modern growth message in the church is that we've lost the ability to have interpersonal relationships because it's all about getting bigger. And as you get bigger, it's difficult to have interpersonal relationships. It's very difficult to know 500 people. In fact, it's impossible to intimately know 500 people. I tried it. You can't do it. I knew like 20% of them. And I couldn't remember half of their names. Now, part of that was my fault. But then I went into the world of trying to study intergroup psychology afterwards and found out that I was hitting the number that experts have said is the number. 
like you can't know more than 150 of them. I don't know if this is worth squat, but the other day I was listening, I was re- uh, reading where Jesus in John 21 shows up on the beach and he tells Peter to cast his nets on the other side. Remember the, the, the follow-up to Peter's charcoal fire problem? Jesus makes breakfast. And he goes, hey, cast your nets on the other side. And they do. And they pull in 153 fish. I never in my life thought about that number until the other day when I was reading that. And I could almost hear the Spirit going, there's really only so many fish you can put in the net. Now, I don't know if that was the Spirit saying that's the limit of it. I'm just saying, um, for some reason, that popped into my head again after all these years. and went, um, God, teach us how to relinquish control and let ministry happen. Father, thank you. I don't know what to pray tonight other than for those who are in this room that needed this word, let it go to work. But I really have a strong sense that it's for someone watching who needs to let go and let the gifts and the ministry take over. And Father, show them how to do that. For those who feel that stirring in their soul, show them that direction in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.